Texas, at the base of the foothills of the Rocky Mountains, about a mile above the sea level portion of the Babylon Matrix, where we are nestled just beneath the beautiful Flatiron Mountains. This is Jonathan Zapp of ZappOracle.com, and welcome to the podcast of A Guide to the Perplexed Interdimensional Traveler. And you might hear some creaking floorboards or other extraneous sounds because this is not a professional uh, sound studio. Hope that's not too distracting. And this is an interesting, this document has a somewhat interesting history. Uh, Let's see, I believe I wrote it or started it in 2006. And um, the circumstances are kind of interesting and described in um, The Path of the Numinous. I had been, uh, I was returning to British Columbia and got, uh, actually 2003, um, is that, is that right? Approximately. And I was returning to British Columbia, um, and got denied at the Canadian border, um, because I had a a British Columbia driver's license, which a Canadian official told me to get. And, um, they thought that looked like I was trying to, uh, live permanently in Canada. So they turned me away at the border and it was kind of a very traumatic experience because uh, most of my stuff and a lot of my key relationships were all on the Canadian side of that border at that point. And uh, I ended up with no plan at all, having to, you know, within five minutes, grab a bunch of my stuff, throw it into a backpack and walk down an isolated country road and ended up at a, a free campground where I stayed for three or four weeks and uh, in a state of... Um, uh, shock sort of and well there's a more full description in the path of the numinous but um what seemed like misfortune kind of like we all know the the chinese ideogram that means crisis also means opportunity the next day when i went to the library to to start emailing and getting online to figure out some things I found that my friend John Major Jenkins had created a little website for me, just a very simple page with maybe like one or two things that I'd written and sent out as like a chain email to a bunch of people. And when I got back to the campground, I found that that for the first time in practically my whole life, because I usually tend to fill up my days with like lots of activity and doing things, I I suddenly just had all this free time on my hands. And that turned into a huge writing phase. And this was one of the principal things that I wrote uh, during the three or four weeks at that campground, as well as mind parasites, energy parasites, and vampires, and maybe one or two other things. In, In mind parasites... Energy Parasites and Vampires, the introductory essay. That was the beginning of my writing about um, Mind Parasite topic. I also describe a strange lunar full moon encounter um, or Mind Parasite confrontation with uh, um, that happened at that campground, uh, a free camp- campground near a power station in Ione, Washington. And so this document's been through a couple of revisions, including one recently. And 
I am now reading this on March 1st, 2011. Are you an interdimensional traveler? Got to get to the right place here. This guide is written by an interdimensional traveler for fellow interdimensional travelers. How can you tell if you're an interdimensional traveler? Look at yourself in a mirror. If you're in some sort of human form and the looking glass returns any sort of reflection, then, for reasons that will soon be explained, you are an interdimensional traveler. If the mirror does not return your reflection, then you are definitely an interdimensional traveler and probably know it. You have always been an interdimensional traveler. Before you were born into this strange and still patriarchal realm, you were in another realm, a womb, a metamorphic wet world in which you floated and existed like an uncollapsed waveform of possibilities. And where were you before the womb realm? Well-documented case histories and evidence suggest that a human being is a multiply incarnate entity. I say suggest because other paranormal explanations are possible besides reincarnation. But it is reasonable to take seriously what a large number of people in various periods and cultures have concluded. Just as we usually pass through many phases within a single incarnation, most of us seem to pass through many incarnations, and each of these incarnations may be seen as dimensions we travel through. If the idea of multiple incarnations seems too fantastical and unproven for you at this point, then you can reality test your status as an interdimensional traveler with a very simple experiment. For safety reasons, the following experiment should be performed from home and not while driving a car or operating any other heavy machinery. This evening, when you start to feel tired and your day is winding down, turn the lights off in your room and lie down in your bed. Once you have completed these steps, go to sleep. After you have drifted into sleep for a while, you will most likely find yourself in another dimension called the dream time. This dimension has a different physics than that of the waking time. Gravity is not so relentless, and you can fly if you wish. Time drops its linearity, that dread ticking of the clock, and becomes far more flexible and bendable. Objects and bodies are not so fixed as the waking time. They are revealed to be shapeshifters and changelings, and manifestation requires no heavy industry, for it is only a thought form away. Remembered or not, the daily alternating rhythm of waking and dreaming is as fundamental to mammalian incarnation as the expansion and contraction, the systole and diastole of your heartbeat. Interdimensional traveling is actually more fundamental to your existence than your heartbeat because one day your heart will stop beating, but you'll still be an interdimensional traveler. Footnote, even if you don't believe in reincarnation, from the point of view of eternity, once you have ever been an interdimensional traveler, then you always are, because in eternity, everything that has ever existed always exists. In other words, your lifetime doesn't have to persist throughout eternity to be part of eternity. So just the fact that in this incarnation, you alternated between waking and dreaming dimensions means that you are always an interdimensional traveler. But maybe you're the sort of person that doesn't remember your dreams, which would be unfortunate, of course. And although you realize that REM sleep is a neurological necessity, 
the dream time does not seem particularly real to you. If that's the case, try a different experiment. Have a conversation with someone to whom you are connected by inner ties. Look into that person's eyes. Can you sense that this other person is like his or her own dimension, an ever-shifting nexus of strange elements with its own timeline and unique inner content generated by a multi-layered psyche? A deep relationship is an impingement and overlapping of dimensions. Behind the eyes of the other, you can glimpse an individualized culture, an inner climate and weather system of shifting moods, evanescent feelings, and glittering thought forms. It's hard to get through even a single day and night without interdimensional travel. Interdimensional traveling is part of your birthright, and whether you'd like to or not, you are going to travel interdimensionally. Oh, and let's not forget that even if we were born too soon to reach the event horizon envisioned by the singularity archetype, we are hurtling toward a guaranteed interdimensional portal, popularly known as death, which shimmers before us in the night of time. And in my recent work on the singularity archetype, I get into um, death as the other side, really, of the singularity archetype. We might not be sure what's on the other side of that event horizon, but it is obviously still another dimension. And so the most concise and accurate description of our core identity is that we are interdimensional travelers. This is what we are, whether we want to be or not, whether we swallow red pills or blue. And our main choice is if we are to be a savvy interdimensional traveler or a foolish one. But no matter how savvy an interdimensional traveler you may already be, the journey across dimensions can still be a rather perplexing process. This guide, which contains insights gleaned by a fellow interdimensional traveler, is offered in the hope that it can provide some assistance to you in your travels, whether the event horizon you cross is personal or a species-wide singularity. And if you're only listening to the podcast rather than reading the online uh, document uh, might be good if you could go through the document quickly and just look at some of the illustrations, some of the interdimensional traveling artwork. And the next little part describes something I wrote before dawn um, one day uh, a couple years ago, and it's before dawn now. As many people know, I, I do my writing, podcasting, and uh, high-level creative stuff uh, before dawn or the magical hours for me. It is before dawn, and I only just awoke from sleeping, dreaming a variety of absurd things. A pathetic robot, sort of like a rickety torso on a skateboard. I was sending it down a grassy hill, but I knew that it didn't have the horsepower to make it back up the hill, and I gradually became aware that I was creating this pathetic situation. This was just a haphazard little reality my bored psyche was generating for its amusement, a boy with a box of crayons on a rainy afternoon. So I left the robot to coast and withdrew into a darkened space, unbound by gravity, where I was rotating slowly because it felt good to rotate slowly and feel the fields of charged energies around me. They were mostly invisible, but some seemed fringed with indigo light, and I sensed that I could go anywhere from this space and be in any form. My disenchanting bondage of one body, one psyche, 
had been freed from the tragic magic of the lower densities, and I was not eager to return to any version of that annoying corporeal heaviness and the absurd limitations it imposed. There was so much more power and freedom being an unbound avatar rotating in fields of energy, a self-contained vortex of awareness, able to travel anywhere. It didn't seem at all appealing to be bound to a single aging body caught in a, in a, in a historical time track. And this particular time track seemed especially unappealing since it was an unstable primate collective possible end time sort of time track where depressed people took serotonin specific reuptake inhibitors and the global economy was ruled by psychopaths and politics were ugly and riddled with parasitic elites. A world of allergens and toxicities of every sort and every sort of hassle and irritating inconvenience and so forth. And why was I supposed to accept that absurd set of impositions again? Why was an entity like myself, rotating in fields of unbound potential and shimmering energy, supposed to shrink himself back into such a narrow and obnoxious time track? I saw then my bodily incarnation as an old vinyl record turning on a turntable with the tone arm removed. The record was somewhat scratched and dusty but it reflected enough light to show that its surface was not so flat as at first it seemed. There were a great number of concentric lines deeply etched with information, vibrational information, and I realized that upon waking, upon waking, I would be obliged, for some absurd reason, to shrink myself down to a tiny diamond needle and put myself back into almost the exact time track of the very same record the very same waking situation where I had last left off, only maybe six hours downstream in time. Then it would be as if the dream time had never happened. Some insidious power would make the dream time vanish like a soap bubble, like the little man on the stair who wasn't there. What power of enslavement took the dream time away and forced me to re-enter the particular waking life, this flat land of rotating vinyl, this not-so-golden oldie, this mechanical medium forcing me to turn with its monotonous revolutions until it plays itself out. Why is that such an inevitability? Why do I have to allow myself to be shrunk down into this dusty etching of extended play plastic, this absurd flatland? I allowed the shrinking down in my vision, allowed myself to be the diamond needle again, circling slowly in my time track on the dusty, scratchy landscape of etched vinyl. But when my diamond needle made contact with the dark vinyl, I was surprised to find that it was no longer a flatland. It was more like an intricate maze of canyons. A landscape, vast and complex, surrounded me on all sides. And it was moving, changing. And I could barely keep up with the moving and changing and only had time to observe the smallest part of its vast and metamorphosing complexity. Also, I sensed that there were, there were other entities, other entities rotating with me, others that were living out parallel time tracks on the same spinning record. And some of these others were deeply connected to me by inner ties. We were like planets in strange elliptical orbits with each other, and there were, there were obligations amongst us, promises to keep, 
it was like we were classmates incarnating together. And somehow our grades and permanent record cards had become strangely intermingled. We were networked together as if we were nodes in a single brain. And I realized it wouldn't be fair to the other brain nodes for me to arbitrarily withdraw from the network. It would be a betrayal for me to choose my own graduation day and skip off in my own eternal avatar summer vacation while my classmates labored on. We were brain nodes that had fired together and wired together, and there was a certain soulful and loving sense to it all, a sense to my enrollment in the time track, this absurdly uncomfortable classroom where I sit slightly slumped, slightly restless in my seat, part of a modular desk bolted to the floor. And then I run my hands over the smooth imitation oak laminate surface of the desk. The desktop is sloped in an angle convenient for writing. The laminate surface is framed by a smooth rounded border of aluminum and can be lifted up. There is space inside the desk, like a sink without a drain made of beige painted sheet metal, and in it are notebooks, my notebooks, and some are black and flecked with amoeboid shapes of white. But the notebook on the top of the pile is not black or flecked with amoeboid shapes of white. Its cover is a many-colored collage, and it is thicker and held together by a long coil of wire like an unelastic spring. Words arise in my dreaming mind, and I realize that this is what is called a spiral notebook. That name seems weird and uncanny somehow. So I pull this very thick and spirally notebook out of the belly of the desk, and I see that the cardboard cover of the notebook has been etched with blue ballpoint, designs carved and shiny from the belabored passes of a steel ball bearing, bearing greasy ink. I open the notebook to a particular blank page that has been indented by a ballpoint pen pressed between the pages like a butterfly, or maybe like a butterfly if a Butterfly had a wingless torso of faceted transparent plastic with a single central artery of greasy blue ink. As I take up the pen and press its steel ball to the paper, I see the vision again of the diamond needle scratching along on the concentric time tracks of the record, rotating slowly at a rate of 33 revolutions per minute. I see that the diamond needle is reading vibrational information etched into the record, but at the same time, it is also etching new information onto the record. It is a read-write needle. Then I notice other diamond needles in contact with the same record, and they are read-write needles as well. I see that myself and my fellow travelers are all reading and writing from and onto the same spinning medium, orbiting together in undulating concentric bands. I realize that I need to fulfill my role a particular read-write needle revolving in a particular time track. I pick up my pen and write a title at the top of the blank page, A Guide to the Perplexed Interdimensional Traveler. Next section is called The Secret of Life. Modestly titled. In the 60s, <clears throat> aspiring young travelers set out to look for the meaning of life. Unfortunately, as someone once pointed out, they got the question backwards because it is life that asks you in a challenging tone, what is your meaning? And you had better be able to supply the answer. 
Meaningfulness is what we need far more than survival. And anyway, as Don Juan put it, there are no survivors on this earth. Or as a wise older man once told me, don't do anything you won't remember well on your deathbed. A razor-sharp way to cut out the trivia and superficialities to get at the meaningful marrow of life. Concentration camp survivor existentialist psychologist Viktor Frankl created a whole school of psychology called logotherapy based on the innate drive for meaningfulness. The ones who could psychologically, spiritually survive the camps, Frankl observed firsthand, were the few who could find meaningfulness in their experience. A frequent theme reported by those who have had transcendent near-death experiences is a revelation of a deep and unexpected meaningfulness in even the mosaic of small, seemingly unconnected experiences of life. And by the way, for some first-hand testimony of people who have had near-death experiences and what they've learned about the meaning of life, uh, please read or listen to the podcast of Life Lessons from the Living Dead, available on this site. Okay. Also revealed during many NDEs and other mystical epiphanies is that this plane of existence is something like a school where we signed on for extremely challenging learning experiences. This brings me to what I believe are the two sides of the secret of life magic coin. Oh, and speaking of coins, I believe it was the ancient Chinese who said that it was extremely lucky and propitious uh, for interdimensional travelers to make donations to the zaporacle.com website. Okay, uh, but now here it is, absolutely free of charge, uh, the magic coin of the secret of life. And of course, that's from my point of view, and but also that of many near-death experiencers. So the first side of this magic coin is self-development. To grow, develop, evolve, become more self-aware and, and conscious in every way possible. This innate will towards self-development was apparent in you even when you floated in the dimension of the womb world. And the other side of the magic coin is to help others, especially with their development. There it is, both sides of the secret of life. And notice that unlike so many other things in life, this magic coin is always available. But uh, don't take my word for it. Uh, go to the East and seek out a guru will probably hit on you and want you to sweep up around the ashram for 20 years. Do whatever you have to do. But this is the secret of life that works for me and feels solid, and I feel a lot of other people have tapped into it as well. I would also like to point out that the life stance I am espousing um, here in this guide is not my original fabrication, much though my narcissism might want to take credit for it, but is largely based on my 30-year study and practical application of the I Ching, the five to 6,000-year-old Book of Changes, in which Taoism and much of Eastern philosophy, martial arts, medicine, and culture is based. And the I Ching doesn't want you to have faith in it, uncritical belief, or doubt, but recommends an open, neutral stance. Take what resonates with your inner truth sense, what works for you, and leave the rest. Returning to the, the, the two sides of our secret of life coin 
Notice that self-development and helping others are two sides of a single integrated whole. But the first side, self-development, is the foundation, and it is only by developing yourself that you have the option and capability to help others with their development. In fact, from the point of view of the I Ching, you have only one obligation in life, which is to get your relationship to yourself right. Fulfill that obligation, and your relationship... um, relationships to others, to time, money, sex, power, food, mortality, career, politics, and the universe will all take care of themselves. But neglect or distort any part of your relationship to yourself and all these other relationships will accordingly be distorted and diminished. Inner independence. At the heart of the healthful relationship to yourself is a stance known as inner independence. You, but not necessarily your ego, are the center of your own vortex, your own ever-changing equilibrium. Whenever you fall into dependence, grasping for precious like an obsessed ring wraith, your center collapses and you become an enslaved puppet of the Babylon matrix. A classic example of this is grasping for the hottie, that all-attractive person out there burning holes in your mind like Soren's one ring to bind them all. Quentin Crisp put it this way. The consuming desire of most human beings is deliberately to plant their whole life in the hands of some other person. I would describe this method of searching for happiness as immature. Development of character consists solely in moving towards self-sufficiency. That was what Quentin Crisp said, which I enthusiastically agree. Codependence or inner independence. The first step on the path of seeking another to complete you is a supreme betrayal, the betrayal of your own soul. So don't be surprised if betrayal remains a central theme of that path. The inner marriage of yin and yang. Getting your relationship to yourself right means working to evolve the inner marriage of yin and yang, feminine and masculine, within yourself. Get that right. And as a whole person, you have the ability to have spiritually transforming, life-affirming relationships. Look to another person to complete you, however, and you become a wraith, forever grasping for a precious that forever eludes your grasp. And of course, precious doesn't have to be a hottie. It can be consumer goods, money, power, career, or whatever the Babylon matrix can tempt you with that you believe you can't live without. But I particularly mention the hottie because this ravenous craving, which most of us know so well, is a pillar of the Babylon matrix. In Plato's Symposium, Aristophanes states that before we were in our present gender-specific bodies, we were spherical beings containing both genders, jealous gods wishing to punish and disempower us, fractured our spherical bodies so that we would lose touch with our androgynous inner wholeness. In this weakened state, we were easily conditioned to follow gender stereotypes, which reinforced the ravenous delusion that we needed sexual romantic union with others to complete ourselves. Break the power of that ancient ruling ring, which in the darkness binds you, and you reclaim your own center of power, self-actualization, and ability to love others as a whole person. And for more on that very important theme, uh, you can 
see some of the documents uh, linked within the document available on the website, such as uh, Stop the Hottie, um, Casting Precious into the Cracks of Doom, um, Lessons for an Entity Incarnating as a Mammal, and No Tristans Allowed Beyond This Point, Debunking the Western Myth of Romantic Love. Meeting Halfway, the Touchstone for Relationship. At the center of relating well to others, cautiously moving outward from your center of inner independence, is the I Ching principle of meeting halfway. That's hexagram number 44. Less than halfway would be, for example, to neglect others to whom we are connected by inner ties. More than halfway would be, for example, giving unasked for advice, proselytizing, self-important intervening, lifeguarding others, etc. So if you go to a, a party, for example, and you see somebody that you're interested in, or attracted to, whatever, um, and uh, but you're so shy that you hide in a corner and never approach him or her, then you have met less than halfway. Hitting on, on uh, him or her without some obvious encouragement from the other would be meeting way more than halfway. Even in the course of conversation, one needs to apply this principle of meeting halfway by keeping attuned to the moment, aware of the subtle minutiae of openings and closings in the other person. With the openings we advance, with the closings we retreat and yield space. When the other transgresses, invades boundaries, or comes at us with false personality, we should not never go along with it should never do anything that compromises our inner dignity. We should withdraw energy from the person who is coming from their false self. This can mean anything from breaking eye contact to withdrawal of energy, ending the conversation, or in some cases, going our own way for a lifetime. When we do withdraw, we should do so lovingly, giving the other space to come to his senses on his own. We do not, in I Ching terms, execute this person in our minds, which would be to view him as hopeless and unable to improve. This would only help to keep him in prison by doubt. We also don't indulge excessive optimism that assumes he will become more conscious in this lifetime or that extends trust where it is being abused. We step back to allow the creative to take its zigzag course, and for our own sake, as well as the others, we try not to carry lawsuit, lawsuits or ongoing grudges against someone. From the I Ching point of view, we are responsible not only for what we say or do to the other, but also for our thoughts, because these are communicated on the inner plane. Psychic Filters and Inner Voices Speaking of our thoughts... We need to watch them constantly. We need to recognize that different voices, often generated by distinct subpersonalities, speak in our heads, and we need a central witness personality to, that observes those voices, subpersonalities, without becoming them. Hexagram 27 reminds us not to nourish ourselves on negative, unnourishing thoughts and fantasies. Yes, that's easier said than done. But here are a couple of psychic filters to keep online that are guaranteed to catch all the psychic allergens, the negative thought forms, that all too easily pervade our inner world. 
We'll call the first of these the tone filter. As you listen to the voices of your inner world or the voices in your outer interpersonal world, refuse to believe any voices that aren't calm, compassionate, and centered. Listen to them, understand where they are coming from, but don't become them. Don't identify with them or believe them. If a voice is nagging, carping, bitter, mechanically repetitious, whining, angry, self-pitying, hypercritical, etc., then it is not to be believed. By tone, you can easily distinguish the voices of false sub-personalities and the still deeper voice and the still deep voice of the self. Now, this uh, to some people, this sounds like some sort of abstract or fantastical thing, but actually, it's just a matter of really paying attention. Uh, so maybe I'm walking down the street and I see an ice cream store and um, one voice inside of me says, I want that. I want ice cream. And another voice says, oh no, but you know you shouldn't have that. You know, that's got cholesterol and sugar and so forth. And then another voice steps in and says, ah, what the fuck? Just go for it. And then another voice steps in and says, oh, well, uh, well, I really shouldn't. But just this one time and starting, starting right after I have this ice cream, I won't have any more or whatever. So there is a negotiation of subpersonalities that often have come from different centers, and this is really going on constantly. It sounds fantastic to some people, but it's just because maybe they haven't slowed down enough to tune in to hear these voices and the different tones that they take. Gerund filter. A second filter involves a list of categories of thought that are indicative of the ego nervously trying to control the Tao. The position of Taoism, based on the I Ching, is that the universe is unfolding as it should. But the ego, like a nervous backseat driver clutching an imaginary steering wheel in its sweaty white-knuckled grip, never trusts the non-linear path of the creative so completely out of its control. Categories, presented as a list of gerunds that indicate the ego resisting the Tao and or trying to assert imaginary control over it, include... Wanting, wishing, worrying, hoping, fearing, dreading, desiring, envying, comparing, supervising, lifeguarding, judging, complaining, self-pitying, striving, anticipating, expecting, pre-structuring, contriving, forcing progress, hedging, rationalizing, clinging, and doubting. Yes, this is an intimidating list. It is, it is an embarrass, embarrassing revelation of just how often we default to the ego dominating our psyches. We'll get into some of the nuts and bolts of how to change patterns of thought and the afflictive emotions that ride into town with them, but first I'd like to say a few more words about the ego. Ego bashing. In New Age and Eastern circles, ego bashing and intellect bashing are the norm, and it is often claimed that the only path to enlightenment is to eliminate ego completely. Unfortunately, they're never able to actually show you people who are walking around and functioning without egos. Their claims are like a diet book filled with endless horrifying before photos, but without any believable after photos. To the extent that they have an after image at all, it comes into focus in the manner of an incompetent watercolor done in an impressionist style. 
And when they do claim to have an egoless guru to show you, it inevitably turns out to be a womanizer with 50 Rolls Royces and an immature, unruly ego, so gigantic and off-scale that the deluded disciples can't see that the emperor of no ego is wearing only a loincloth, while their ego projections clothe him in Sariman's wizard cloak of many colors. The self-organizing principle of the organism. Ego is so basic to our existence that one transpersonal psychologist defines it as, quote, the self-organizing principle of the organism, unquote. With no ego, there is no self-reference, which you need to do almost anything. And um, <clears throat> Terence, maybe in an exaggerated way, sometimes say, uh, Terence McKenna, Without ego, you'd be at a restaurant and you wouldn't know whose mouth to put the food in. That goes a little too far, but you get the idea. You need the self-reference. An amazingly good discussion of the nature of the ego is to be found in the What is Ego edition, edition of What is Enlightenment magazine. Everyone they interviewed had something fascinating and insightful to say about the nature of ego except for one famous female guru from India uh, who's, who, while claiming to be a divine being without ego, reveals the classic delusions of a sadistic, power-tripping, gigantically inflated ego. And, of course, the founder of the magazine, Andrew Cohen, is also a notorious uh, abusive guru. A flaw in many Eastern and New Age paths. Eastern gurus with acting out unruly egos have become such a classic syndrome that they deserve some special mention in our discussion of ego. Jung, who helped bring the I Ching and other Eastern teachings into the West, warned Westerners not to uncritically adapt wholesale Eastern practices of transformation that were designed in a different era for psyches very differently structured than what we usually find today in the West, and increasingly in the modern East. A classic flaw in many Eastern approaches to transformation, and also certain New Age and Christian permutations, is a one-sided emphasis on vertical spiritual transcendence, and a gross neglect of the horizontal plane of human incarnation. The engagement, the descent into the worlds of relationship, activity in the world, and the details of how our personalities work and interrelate. That's what I mean by the horizontal plane. Especially deficient in so many of these vertical transcendent sects in integration is integration of what Jung called the shadow, the inferior and repressed parts of the personality, typically hidden by a cloud of self-loathing, denial, and unconsciousness. Hidden within the shadow are often unexpected talents and powers cast off with the rest of the unwanted aspects of personality. Shadow projection and integration. And, and I guess uh, in dynamic paradoxicalism, I get into a little bit more about this problem with Eastern gurus. I use Chaim Trungpa as an example. Basically, you find people who, because everyone is telling them that they've, and that because they claim, and everyone seems to confirm them in their ungrounded claim that they have transcended their ego, they therefore think that they don't have to uh, have any uh, inner vigilance about their personal shadow, which they neglect. And therefore, it acts as an autonomous complex. 
And so they act out every kind of unruly impulse, uh, drink themselves to death after, you know, uh, womanizing and, and abuse that would probably have gotten him thrown into jail as a sex offender. I'm talking about Choyam Trungpa. And what many of the other uh, gurus have done. Um, I, I think I talk about this also in Carnival 2012, where I talk about the 22 classic pitfalls of esoteric research. Um, and basically, uh, so many of the, the, the gurus that came to the East and were revealed and inflated um, by uh, credulous Western followers all were com- turned out to be deeply messed up when it came to money, sex, and power. Okay. Shadow projection and integration. When the shadow is unconscious and unintegrated, then it must be displayed, projected onto some despised, uh, displaced, and projected onto some despised person or group. For example, the Nazis projected their shadow onto the Jews, whom they said were trying to control the world, while they attempted to establish a thousand-year Reich. Typically, on the personal level, shadow projection is experienced quite often as an intense dislike of some irritating person, usually of our gender and age range. And that's not <clears throat> true in every case, but that, that's a classic. Repulsion can be like attraction in reverse, and we are often magnetized um, like a um, gruesome car accident we can't look away from by the spectacle of someone acting out their inferior traits we fear and deny in ourselves. Integration of the shadow begins by reclaiming these despised traits, following the projections back to their source, our psyches, and recognizing that the shadow is part of us. This takes a great deal of moral courage and will. In the Star Wars fantasy, this is what Luke must do when he is instructed by Yoda to go into the cave and face fear, face some his worst fears or something, without his lights, lightsaber. He ignores Yoda's advice about the lightsaber, cuts off Darth Vader's breath mask, only to discover his own face lies behind it. The Wayfarer's Path. Most people are not willing to face their own shadow and unconsciously make the choice of the Wayfarer in the poem of the same name by Stephen Crane. The Wayfarer, perceiving the pathway to truth, was struck with astonishment. It was thickly grown with weeds. Ha, he said. I see that none has passed here in a long time. Later he saw that each weed was a singular knife. Well, he mumbled at last, doubtless there are other roads. And uh, I would suggest that's a good poem to commit to memory. People who have sought out paths of one-sided vertical transcendence usually have done nothing to integrate their shadow, but instead form cliques, sects, as an S-E-C-T-S, or cults, where they can join with others in reinforcing each other in the delusion that they're on a path of transcending their egos. Actually, they tend to form communities of immature egos with grossly unintegrated shadows, which run around acting out all the inferior qualities they believe they have transcended. Any charismatic leader of the cult or sect will typically have complete license to act out compulsive sexuality, to power trip, dominate, seduce, and financially swindle followers the followers will feel an electrifying desire to proselytize. 
The need to proselytize is almost always a classic sign of an imbalanced psyche. The hysterical need to spread the psychic contagion and gain partners in vice while believing that you are converting the infidels. And and Jung pointed this out somewhere. At the very least, they will reek of spiritual affectations and more transcendent-than-thou attitudes. To be a whole person means integrating yin and yang, feminine and masculine, horizontal and vertical, shadow and spirit. This is not as easy as the vertical shortcut, the purchase stairway to heaven or sartori, and that's why Jung felt that crucifixion, being caught between the horizontal and vertical axes of life, is a central metaphor for the human condition. Mind and ego in the hierarchy of psychic functions. Eliminating the ego to resolve our troubled relationship with it is no more sensible than decapitation would be as a remedy for recurrent headaches. Superstitious dread of the ego is almost always accompanied by a fanatical anti-intellectualism and disparagement of the mind. Mind and ego are not our enemies. It is where we place our mind and ego and how we work with these priceless resources that often makes them our enemies. In most I Ching hexagrams, the fifth line is the ruler and the fourth line is the minister. This structure contains the secret of how to work with the ego and mind so that they become powerful allies instead of adversaries. In the place of the ruler in our psyche should not be our ego or mind, but our higher self and global intuition. I'll discuss where the mind and ego should be in a little bit. True will on Taoism. Taoism is often presented in a way that makes it seem that you are passively surrendering to an outside Tao. A way to pierce through this illusion is with a concept such as Aleister Crowley's true will. Note, I'm not endorsing Crowley's character, only certain of his concepts. And you can find out a lot more about this, my sort of version of Taoism in my metaphilosophy, my essay, Dynamic Paradoxicalism, the Anti-ism-ism. Your true will is the will of your higher self. And many will object to the spatial metaphors of higher and lower. Some of that's reasonable. But this is the will that, the, that arises out of the depths, another spatial metaphor, of yourself. This is true. This is the will that, that you know, would speak to you and you ask yourself the question, what will I remember well in my deathbed? And you'll, you'll hear some voice saying, I need to spend more time with my kids. I need to you know, write the great novel. Well, whatever it is, that would be your true will. This true will speaks through the still-centered voice of global intuition and is often confirmed by synchronicities, oracle consultations, etc. This true will is your inner refraction of the Tao, and it is to be followed before anything else. This might require you, your true will, your inner refraction of the Tao, to proactively overcome all sorts of inner and outer obstructions. You are not necessarily passively led by outside trends. Again, the way most people seem to interpret Taoism. As George Bernard Shaw said, the reasonable man adapts himself to the world. The unreasonable one persists in trying to adapt the world to himself. Therefore, all progress depends on the unreasonable man. Many would interpret the reasonable man's position as Taoist and the unreasonable man's position as egoistic and anti-Taoist. 
This would be true if the unreasonable man were expecting the world to adapt itself to his ego. But if the unreasonable man is censured in his true will, then this is Taoist as compared to a supposedly reasonable person whose reason and rationalized ego are oriented toward accommodating the default parameters of the Babylon matrix. And once again, see dynamic paradoxicalism for probably a better explanation of that. The ruler and the minister of the psyche. With your true will and global intuition and the ruling place in your psyche, you can then appoint your mind and ego as ministers that follow the ruler and work as helpful subordinates. In this place, ego and mind can, among other functions, act as skillful intermediaries between the aims of your true will and the outside world. It is only when the mind and ego are foolishly promoted above their capabilities into the ruling position that they work at cross-purposes and undermine everything we do. And yes, they can be foolishly ambitious in the way of the Peter Principle to rise to their level of incompetence. The unenlightened ego thinks it should be in charge. The goal is to develop a more conscious, evolved ego that knows its place. The mind can also be a brilliant amplifier and translator for global intuition and primal creativity, among other useful functions. Try fixing your computer with your feelings or transcendent spirit. I'm still working on the process of aligning these aspects of the psyche in myself. Consciousness is not something you arrive at, but that you have to earn and work toward moment by moment. I'll briefly use myself as an example to ground this in a particular real-life case. Because I am, I am, according to Jung's typology, a thinking intuitive type or intuitive thinking type, raised by thinking types, people often have an understandable but somewhat mistaken impression that I'm up in my head thinking of the things they hear me say or write. More often, the way I experience my psyche working is that there is a cascade of intuitions and my active thinking function works with that cascade, analyzing, interpreting, and typically turning the intuitive input into complex sentences that may give the impression they were thought up. Of course, sometimes that's true. Sometimes I'm calling up memorized raps on various subjects and reciting them. But originally, these raps were sourced from a melding of intuition and thought. After the fact, I can ask the thinking function to act as information minister and recite the rap which has been processed and sometimes distorted by thinking, but not originally created by thinking, at least not thinking by itself. I experience my thinking function as hollow, boring, and incompetent when it works by itself, except when it's troubleshooting the computer and learning instruction manuals, etc. And it still feels boring when I'm doing that, but it's, it's the most competent to handle that kind of task. I can only feel enthusiastic about using my psyche when intuition, thinking, and often feeling are all connected and working together. The difference is instantly discernible, like the difference between a stereo system where all the components are working together to create a full spatial sound as compared to the tinny, irritating monophonic of an AM radio broadcasting a call-in radio show. Of course, sometimes the ego um, can play tricks like putting a grandiose symphonic soundtrack behind its irritating, hollow, monophonic voice. But if you pay attention, you can tell the difference. Again, we talked about recognizing those subpersonalities by the tone with which they speak. The power of holding back. 
Many people feel trapped by their mind and ego because they find themselves caught in an introspective hell of mental tape loops that often focus on alternatively self-degrading and self-aggrandizing self-evaluations. They come to feel that the inner life itself, self-reflection and metacognition, which is the ability to think about thinking, which is a great evolutionary advance, um, they come to think that those things are what are holding them back from an, from an effectual life. They may even come to believe that the way to escape this inner turmoil is to become a thoughtless extrovert, a man of action. And I came to realize this when I was 19 and wrote a paper on Dostoevsky entitled Dostoevsky and the Profound Egocentric, linked on the website, of course. Uh, many Dostoevsky characters lament their internal consciousness as a liability, feel that reason makes them incapable of action and decisiveness, and seek to become unthinking men of action. The narrator of Notes from Underground, uh, for example, says... Quote, uh, the direct, the inevitable, and the legitimate result of consciousness is to make all actions impossible. Or, to put it differently, consciousness leads to thumb twiddling. Unquote. And no doubt in the Russian it didn't say exactly thumb twiddling, but I guess that's a colloquial parallel. The earliest literary example of this syndrome I can find is in Shakespeare's Hamlet. Hamlet uh, reproaches himself for being John of Dreams. In fact, I think even Dostoevsky, in some of his journals and so forth, talked about Hamletism or something he called it. Um, he, he recognized it, uh, even that Hamlet had something in common with these uh, self-reflective anti-heroes he was obsessed with. In one monologue, Hamlet states, <clears throat> Thus conscience does make cowards of us all. And thus the native view of resolution is sickled over with pale cast of thought, and enterprises of great pitch and moment with disregard their currents turn awry and lose the name of action. Act 3, scene 1 um, is where that came from. Hamlet eventually tries to rebel against his introverted state and become a man of action. Oh, from this time forth my thoughts be bloody or be nothing worth. T.S. Eliot's J. Alfred Prufrock voices similar sentiments. Prufrock says, Time yet for a hundred indecisions, and there will be time to wonder, do I dare, and do I dare? Prufrock would prefer to be thoughtlessly instinctual rather than in, his, in this state of ineffectual self-consciousness. To have been a pair of ragged claws scuttling along the floors of silent seas. Like many contemporary persons, these literary characters falsely attribute their ineffectual indecisiveness to introspection, reason, and self-awareness. What is imprisoning them is psychic entropy, not self-awareness, not reason, nor ego, <clears throat> but the hierarchy of psychic functions. Uh, they're essentially living in an inner hell world where mind and ego are in charge of introspection. If intuition and the self were in charge of the process, and mind and ego in service of these higher functions, their experience would be altogether different in kind. When I was 19 and wrote my paper on Dostoevsky, I had a breakthrough in this regard. I discovered that light um, could break through uh, the shadowy mental prison when intuition took the place of recursive thinking. 
The inner process that used to torment me when it was conducted by mind and ego, I now find to be entertaining, enlightening, and forever providing me with exciting new material. So instead of mind-ego alliance playing the same old anxious tapes, my inner process is led by the muse, the ego, and mind are, are very much at work in that process, but as followers, not leaders. Some people who villainize the mind and ego as the problem, rather than the foolish placement of the mind and ego, even more foolishly believe they must get rid of mind and ego through a lifetime of meditation. Other people villainize introspection and that believe that being a thoughtless man of action is the answer. For example, Presidents 41 and 43, Bush, the father and the son, frequently brag, I don't psychoanalyze myself. W has even said more than once, I only look in the mirror when I'm shaven. But Socrates said, know thyself. This world is dying from lack of effective introspection. Spend that inner time guided by your intuition. If you spend it alone with mind and ego, then the inner temple will seem a prison, and you will feel like the mind and ego's prison bitch. This helpful alignment of a higher self, global intuition, and true will with mind and ego is often especially challenged when we are caught in some dilemma and feel pressed to make a decision. The ego can't stand the ambiguous, ambivalent situations that are so typical of human incarnation. It would like to force progress, come to some kind of clarifying decision, and get on with its linear goal tracks. This can lead to some um, horrible choices. Alternatively, the ego and thinking function, sensing their incompetence as high-level decision-makers, will take the ambiguous situation and keep gnawing at it like a dog with a, a chew toy. Another metaphor is an endless ping-pong match where different thoughts and possible scenarios get bounced back and forth forever. What is needed here and mentioned throughout the I Ching is the all-important ability to hold back, to not go forward until we have been shown, until we have heard that still inner voice speak our true will, or until a light has been shown through the unfolding of events of where we have to go. As Goethe said, a master first reveals himself in his ability to hold back. The Zen archer who hits the mark does so because she holds the arrow back until just the right moment. Solitude as default position. One aspect of life that is a classic illustration of this principle is the choice of whether or not to go forward into a romantic relationship. Some people have an ego identity that requires them to be in a romantic relationship. It's as if something inside them says... I have to be going out with someone, might as well be this person. Anybody who finds they are weighing this kind of choice by examining lists of advantages or disadvantages of possible mates is playing this sort of game. This is the merchant mind trying to evaluate where it can get the best deal. You know, this one likes candlelit romantic dinners, but this one likes long watches on the beach and has a better income and so forth. And people do this with like personal ads. Uh, that's the way to buy a dishwasher, not to find a soulmate. My personal point of view is that for the conscious person, the default position should be solitude, but with a willingness to enter into romantic relationship and give it all the infinite care it deserves, if and only if that is our true will, and we are called from the depths of our being to have a relationship with a particular person and not an idealized projection or something that you settled for based on uh, merchant mind sorting. 
Although I am fanatically opposed to one-size-fits-all formulations, especially about something as fantastically varied as human eros, this is what I believe can spare the conscious evolving person from the suffering of messy karma. Hold back until you know. Reticence. A woman I know has been practicing a wonderful inner discipline which accords with the I Ching principle of holding back. She calls the practice inner yes. Until a, cho uh, a choice lights up in her whole body as being an inner yes, then the answer is no, and she waits. This takes patience, but saves her from many costly mistakes. Similarly, the I Ching puts a high value on reticence, holding back with spoken words and other actions until you are sure you have the inner yes. When you're dealing with a captive audience, for example, while riding in a vehicle, I believe that a moral person should have strong inhibitory filters before they speak. If I speak to a captive audience, I'm usually blocking any members of that audience from being able to effectively concentrate on their own thoughts. So before I encroach on the perceptual space of the other, I ought to be convinced that what I have to say is something they need to hear, or at least has sufficient entertainment value, <clears throat> um, as compared to me venting or indulging the narcissistic urge to capture attention. Dealing with afflictive thoughts and feelings. Earlier, I promised that we would get more into the nuts and bolts of how to deal with negative thought forms and the afflictive emotions associated with them. The most comprehensive and effective approach I found is in a marvelous book entitled Emotional Alchemy by Tara Bennett Gullman. Tara, a Zen Buddhist psychotherapist, and her husband Daniel Gullman wrote the best-selling book entitled Emotional Intelligence. They also collaborated with the Dalai Lama on a book about overcoming afflictive emotions. Emotional Alchemy. If you like this approach, I would certainly suggest reading Emotional Alchemy, which is now available in paperback at almost any large bookstore. I don't know if it's still in print, but you can probably find it on uh, Amazon. The book is rather repetitive, however, and in a few pages I can probably tell you 80% of what's in it. The Goldmans bring together Buddhist psychology, cognitive psychology, and some recent findings from neuroscience into their groundbreaking work on afflictive emotions. Afflictive emotions is a Buddhist term that describes a general phenomenon that most of us are all too familiar with, the suffering, the affliction of negative emotions. There is nothing new about this problem, but it has also been never timelier with depression and anxiety disorders dramatically on the rise in the West, particularly in the U.S. First, we will take a look through a synthesis of the three disciplines mentioned above, neuroscience, cognitive psychology, and Buddhist psychology, at how afflictive emotions work and how they gain hold and easily dominate our inner experience. Then we will discuss the alchemy part, how to transform our relationship with afflictive emotions through methods that can dramatically reduce suffering. And I can testify from my own personal experience to the effectiveness of this method. Neurological materialism. Part of the reason that afflictive emotions are so virulent and so hard to change may have to do with our neural architecture. I say may because neurology is in its infancy, as far as I'm concerned, and has never been able to successfully explain the association of consciousness in the brain. A terrible delusion, which I've written about elsewhere, and which I wish the Goldmans had acknowledged, is the philosophical and pseudoscientific position known as neurological materialism. 
A neurological materialist believes that consciousness, if they admit consciousness exists at all, many don't, is an epiphenomenon that is a secondary effect of biochemical process in the brain. Neurological materialism dominates the psychology departments of most colleges and universities in the U.S., and many ordinary citizens have picked up on this and taken it as a given, proven by science, in quotes. But it has not been proven by science. Quite the contrary. There is much scientific evidence pointing away from neurological materialism. Part of the problem is that in the soft sciences of biology and psychology, Many have not been able to integrate the findings of quantum mechanics and are still pretending to do science while inhabiting an archaic Newtonian universe where everything is governed by causality. Physicists like Dana Zohar, Roger Penrose, and Mika Swamy, and Fred Allen Wolf have proposed quantum mechanical models in which neurological process is a correlate, an analog, an acausal parallelism to a consciousness that is hyperspatial, non-local, and not in the brain. <clears throat> Those who have had OBEs, I've had men, numerous, and NDEs have experienced that consciousness can exist outside the body and is actually greatly enhanced by being out of the body. And for a highly detailed case history of an NDE that would be impossible to explain by neurological materialism, see Life Lessons from the Living Dead, linked on the site. Neural Architecture and the Emotional Body you do not, however, have to buy into the fallacy of neurological materialism to recognize that neurological realities, such as neurotransmitter levels and neural architecture, are huge players in human experience. So after this long disclaimer about neurological materialism, let's take a look at what neuroscience can tell us about afflictive emotions, the low-resolution amygdala. Now that we have the technology to do real-time uh, imaging of live people, scientists are able to map out activity levels of different brain structures moment by moment. When that's been observed, and what's been observed is that when people are exposed to an emotional trigger event, the amygdala, a brain structure somewhere behind the frontal lobes, goes hot. When strong emotional response is aroused, the amygdala lights up on the computer screen as its metabolism intensifies. Neuroscientists believe that the amygdala evolved as an environmental threat detection monitor. They believe that it stores threat patterns such as snakes, spiders, fire, predators. And when a trigger event occurs, when something is perceived in the environment that matches or seems to match these patterns, the amygdala turns on and triggers fight-or-flight readiness throughout the body. The amygdala, however, is no rocket scientist. Its pattern recognition ability is crude, primitive, low resolution. As a survival strategy, it's safer to get a lot of false positives rather than to miss a single actual hazard. Better for a scaredy cat, a domestic cat with overly strong startle reflex, to jump away from imaginary hazards than to miss one car. The big cats I used to work for at the Prairie Wind Animal Refuge didn't have this type of startle reflex because no one sneaks up on a 600-pound tiger. So, for example, an animal or person could have a powerful startle response to, say, a piece of rope dangling from a branch at the edge of peripheral vision, which the speedy but imprecise amygdala may read as a dangerous snake. Also, to put the amygdala in the context of neural architecture, it has strong neuronal connections to the neocortex in human beings. 
This may explain how the amygdala, which is fast but low resolution in its discrimination, can easily dominate our higher thinking, which is higher resolution but much slower to react. Therefore, we experience a second or two when we actually think we've seen a snake until our neocortex can reassert itself and reinterpret the sensory information with a higher resolution discrimination. It is also believed by neuroscientists that in this phase of evolution, where most human beings are, are more threatened by emotional trauma in early childhood than by snakes or fire, patterns of emotional trauma are now what is primarily stored in the amygdala. Schemas, stereotype patterns of emotional reactivity. Following that glimpse at the amygdala from neuroscience, we switch to cognitive psychology, which contributes to finding that there are classic stereotype patterns of emotional reactivity that it calls schemas. These schemas, and here you would do well to go to Emotional Alchemy, the book, where they are individually discussed, include very familiar afflictions such as abandonment fear, low self-esteem, deprivation, and entitlement. When trigger events occur, these ingrained patterns of emotional reactivity click in and we typically have disproportionate, inaccurate, stereotyped responses, while the higher resolution discrimination and more reflective aspects of higher thinking are overridden by an intense emotional funk. Trigger events and storylines. Let's ground this in an example so we can see how all this comes together in a typical case. Our case involves a young woman, an office worker, who was raised by narcissistic, rather unloving parents. As a consequence of her early childhood experience, she is especially governed emotionally by the deprivation schema with generous helpings of the low self-esteem and abandonment schemas thrown in. One of her co-workers goes out on a coffee run for everyone, and when he returns, as a random accident, her coffee was forgotten. This minor accident is a trigger event for her deprivation schema. Almost instantly, in less than a quarter of a second, her amygdala lights up and catalyzes a cascade of pronounced physiological changes. Her face flushes as capillaries dilate, heart rate increases, body temperature elevates, and breathing becomes fast and shallow. The amygdala sends strong signals to her neocortex, causing her thinking to fall into line with disproportionate, inaccurate, stereotype thought forms coalescing into a storyline which helps us perpetuate which helps to perpetuate the trauma and reinforce the schema they forgot mine on purpose i'm always left out no one ever gives me my fair share i knew they didn't like me he's just like my father etc this funk could continue for hours or continue almost perpetually in the background especially as internal perturbations, traumatic memories, negative thought forms, and fantasies can be internally generated as trigger events to perpetuate the misery. Buddhist psychology now comes into play with suggested methods of self-liberation from afflictive emotions. The Buddhists have a concept variously translated as the law of dependent origination or dependent arising. There's a chain of dependent, causally related events that creates the suffering of afflictive emotions. In the case of the schema attack described above, for example, we have trigger events linked to neurological response, linked to physiological response, linked to cognitive response, the storyline. Break any part of this chain and you can break the whole cycle. Breaking inner tape loops with numbers exercises. So this would be how to break the cycle. One, one 
method. It's simple and direct. For example, an elegantly simple method to break the cognitive link involves occupying your mind with simple numbers exercises. This method is not an emotional alchemy, and the particular numbers exercises come from a book of psychological techniques and exercises designed to support a Gurdjieffian approach to consciousness. Use this method especially when you find that your mind is looping. In other words, it's playing the same negative storyline tapes again and again. He said, she said, etc. When you focus your mind on the numbers exercises, you will stop the looping, stop the storylines, stone cold dead in their well-worn tracks. True, numbers exercises may not be very entertaining, but it'll take non, I'll take non-entertainment over looping storylines that create the suffering of afflictive emotion and thereby degrade bodily health as well. The first numbers exercise, which demands focused attention, is to count up by twos from one and down by twos from 100 in an alternating sequence. Okay, that sounds complicated, but what you might want to do is, is write it out or you could print out right from the text version of this uh, document, um, this little sequence of numbers. 1, 3, 198. 5, 7, 96, 94. 9, 11, 92, 90. 13, 15, 88, 86. Uh, so basically what we're doing is counting up by twos and down by twos in an alternating sequence. If you write it out, you'll, you'll see what's going on. You'll see what's going on pretty easily. This gets a little tricky when the two streams of numbers cross. But you'll find that you get into rhythm with it and get a lot easier, and it gets a lot easier with practice. So they would cross when you were like 52, 50, 47, 49, and so forth. Um, okay, so they that's when it gets a little tricky, and... It, um, what will happen is <clears throat> your mind will want to default back to the storylines, daydreams, or other distractions, which is its default mode. That's where it wants to be or where an aspect of you wants to be. You could also look into the um, a document also on the site called Rebelling from the Pain Body Matrix because sometimes it's the pain body, if you believe in such a thing, that wants us to return to the painful storylines, uh, just like a person who who compulsively can't stop um, mutilating themselves. There's, there's part of us that, that will want to return to exactly the, the, to the exact same poison, psychic poison, again and again. So if our mind succeeds in, if that force succeeds in pulling us back into those um, tape loops, you know, and that's a good time to notice it as having its own sort of distinct will, um, it will, of course, break the numbers exercise, at, at which point you know that it's crossed the boundary. And it's like there's a, uh, a saying, if there's a demon in your circle, it must be pushed out. It might be an old Asian saying or something. Uh, well, if something is pulling you back into these toxic tape loops, it, that's like a demon that needs to be pushed out. Uh, something is wrenching uh, your will away from you. And... I think we would agree with the uh, goal of having more free will. Uh, so <clears throat> you just pick up the numbers exercise again, and now you're stopping its tape loops. Once again, stone cold dead in their path. 
And the second numbers exercise is much easier and can be done partly on autopilot, which presents a great temptation for your attention to wander off and for you to lose track of the numbers. It's designed that way, the second exercise we're going to do too, to train you to maintain focus, to have power over the default mechanism that wants to switch you back to storylines, daydreams, etc. It also trains you to divide attention, as you can easily do this exercise while doing laundry, driving, manual chores, etc. This time you count up by twos in an ascending-descending sequence that keeps growing like a ladder that you climb up and down, adding a new rung with each ascent. That sounds much more complicated than it is. Uh, the top number is always repeated and is two higher than the last top number. It looks like this. One, three, three, one. And it becomes like this kind of incantory chant in your mind. At least it does in my mind. One, three, five, five, three, one. One, three, five, seven, nine, nine, seven, five, three, one. One, three, five, seven, nine, eleven, eleven, nine, seven, five, three, one. One more part of this easy sequence is that whenever you hit the number 11, coming up or down the ladder, you do some sort of bodily movement, snapping your fingers, blinking an eye, etc. You're doing well with this exercise if you can make it into the 70s without losing the number stream by defaulting into tape loops, daydreams, etc. Like push-ups and sit-ups, numbers exercises may not always be fun, but they are a very effective way to become stronger. And it's like sit-ups and push-ups. There's nothing glamorous or magical about them, but you keep at them, and it's amazing the, the change that they can create. Th this is like push-ups and sit-ups for free will. Your ability to be in control of what's playing in your psyche. You, you, you've been the, you know, in some ways we can... And I'm, I'm thankful that I'm past the stage for the most part. Uh, but, you know, you can really become like the prison bitch for uh, negative tape loops that just take over and start playing and don't stop playing. And, and you're not in charge of what makes them, of making them start um, or it, it, that's the way you experience it or that's the way you live your life. Um, there's no way you should put up with that. That would be like choosing to live with an abusive boyfriend who's in your head all the time. So the, uh, if, if you can exert control over that by doing something as simple as a numbers exercise and take back that sovereign domain, uh, that absolutely that you must never surrender, uh, your inner, uh, uh, processing space, then that is a, a very good thing indeed. Okay, next section, Heisenberg's Uncertainty Principle and Self-Observation. Now we'll return to the emotional alchemy approach that centers on the Buddhist practice of mindfulness. I've been practicing mindfulness techniques for years and have found them uh, to be very effective in everything from dealing with bodily pain, such as uh, mindfulness pain management, everyday tasks, and even getting more enjoyment out of eating food. We know from physics, Heisenberg's uncertainty principle, that to observe a thing is to change a thing. The maximal case of this effect is when the human psyche is observing itself. So one way of, of doing that, I have a friend um, who has had a problem recently with 
or not recently, for quite a while, I guess, uh, of uh, pretty extreme mood changes and um, times when everything just seemed, when life just doesn't seem like it's worth it uh, and so forth. <clears throat> and other, other times without anything in his outer life changing, he feels perfectly fine or even uh, euphoric at times. And um, we finally got to the point um, where he had really gotten solid on recognizing that um, not to fall into the narrative, what I would call the narrative fallacy. That is where uh, when he uh, used to have these things happen, he would attribute it to his job, to where he was living, to key relationships, to the lack of certain relationships, and, and so on and so forth. And this is what we all tend to do. You create a storyline to explain the feeling. And yet these, these factors he attributes it to weren't any difference yesterday or the day before when he was feeling just fine. So now he, he recognizes the, the fallacy of that, but doesn't feel any um, ability to, to control the ebb and flow of these things. So what I suggested to him as a practice is, well, here's a, here's a way you can take a certain control and ha- have a certain greater power with it. Carry around a, a little notebook, a moleskin book or whatever, or you could maybe even, you know, if you have a smartphone, you could take notes on that or whatever it is, a 25-cent notebook. But the point is that it be available throughout the day. And now if you have a tendency towards, say, these kind of dark funks overtaking you, you you're going to be the naturalist uh, that is fascinated with this process and wants to observe everything about it. So when when things when this state starts to happen, first of all, there's going to be a slight attitudinal shift. This may or may, may not be easy to pull off, but any part of it would be good. Think of yourself as a um, person in the Amazon that's a, a rare butterfly collector, and now you see this beautiful butterfly, and there's a chance to get it into your net. Any, any piece of information coming your way about that dark state that you go into is an extremely important and valuable piece of information that could be life-saving for you to obtain. So think of every signal you're getting from that dark state as like a butterfly that is an exotic butterfly ready to fly into your net. It's something really valuable that you can observe and record, and every observation you make about it is like the point on a map that will be, each point adds a pixel of information and until the map starts to become a whole lot more clear. And when you can map this thing, that's a certain power of abstraction that you have over it. You've distanced yourself enough to observe it uh, in that way. And so the kind of notes you'll keep will be, you know, the exact date and time when you started to notice the funk coming on. Did it have a kind of aura? Did it suddenly just start to happen all in a moment because of a particular trigger event or was it just or is it a mood that you woke up into or a mood that started to happen late at night and it tends to happen much more late at night than at any other time of the day this is the kind of thing you want to observe sort of like what are its sleep patterns what are its feeding patterns when when is it um 
ebbing? When is it, wa- you know, waxing? When is it waning? And so forth. <clears throat> and just by observing it, you are creating a witness personality that exists outside of the dark complex or whatever you want to call it. And so that automatically gives you power. It gives you existence uh, separate from it. Whereas if, if you're not observing it, then you just become it and it just envelops you. And that does not seem like an acceptable thing to surrender to, in my opinion. Okay, let's get back to the text, which will uh, reinforce some of these ideas. Mindfulness pain management. Mindfulness involves sustained investigative awareness, a persistent witness consciously observing what's going on, inner and or outer, with great presence, moment by moment. To practice mindfulness pain management, for example, I focus in on the pain sensations. So it's sort of a paradox. By engaging the experience more, you actually get more distance from it in a certain way. Because you're, you're, uh, instead of trying to turn down the pain, you've turned up your awareness. And, and that um, in itself um, puts the pain into a kind of uh, distance in a strange way. It's a real, uh, really charged paradox. I observe and, okay, so you, so for example, the pain I feel in my recently at the time I first wrote this, dislocated thumb seems to radiate outward in pulsing concentric waves from the center of the knuckle. I observe and map out its periodicity, its ebb and flow, when it is peaking and when it is subsiding. I don't shrink from it. I welcome it into into perception and carefully observe its modulations. And, And usually I would see it a little bit visually, almost like on an oscilloscope, where you see this waveform of its pulsation. I mean, it has a, a specific rhythm, almost, uh, pain often does. When I do this, it becomes an intensifying energetic phenomenon happening in my perceptual universe. Emotional funks and negative thought forms can also be studied with this careful and personal observation. Mindful self-observation. When I hear a voice speak in my head, I can welcome it into my perceptual field, the inner theater of my mind, and ask it to step into the spotlight of attention and show me who it is and what it really wants. By mindfully observing the emotions and storylines, we cannot be identified with them. We have an outside witness observing, so they cannot think us as they did to the young woman office worker in her schema attack. You can observe them with a cool, neutral, compassionate, observational stance. Instead of shrinking from them, welcome them into attentional space, the metaphor I used before, the butterfly collector. And I guess I wrote about that in the text. I won't repeat that, though. But, you know, you say to yourself, aha, here's a live one I can study. As you work with this practice, you will find that your mindfulness will have less discontinuities and you will catch scheme attacks sooner, which is a very wonderful thing to do. At the early phase of the practice, you might notice that you had a scheme attack only after it's over. Why did I get into that silly argument? Oh, I see it was my deprivation schema triggered when she said blah, blah, blah. 
Another time you might catch a scheme attack while it's happening, while the butterfly is in the net. If it, if it is happening just internally, not an interpersonal argument, you can observe without direct interference and learn something about what type of schemas you have and what type of su subpersonalities come forward to speak for them. See how long the scheme attack lasts. When does it peak? When does it start to taper off? What was the trigger event? How is your body being affected? Breathing, muscle contractions, etc. After you have felt that how, how it's changed your posture, that's a good one. After you have felt that you've sufficiently studied who the voices are and what they want, these are the voices speaking in your head. Um, and if you're honest with yourself, that's what's going on throughout is the voiceover monologue. Um, we'd be fools not to want to edit that or to make sure we have some conscious control over that. Uh, you can choose in a later stage of the practice to actively intervene. Uh, so you start with observing, and then you, but you also have the option of like direct intervention. And an example of that would be the numbers exercise. Just be like, hey, I'm tired of hearing what you have to say. It's stopping right now. And, and now you actually get to shut them up. The numbers exercise is one way to do that, obviously. Okay. Um, the text and the extemporaneous uh, overlap a little bit here and there. Sorry for that. The frightening-looking um, deities seen outside of some Buddhist temples are supposed to be entities of wrathful compassion. At this phase of the practice, you can be wrathfully compassionate and intervene with a ferocious act of will. I used to visualize a glowing magical sword hovering above an old reel-to-reel -reel tape recorder I used to have, the moving reels of tape playing the annoying thought forms. When I summoned my will, the sword would come slicing down into the tape, cutting it in two so that its reels would begin to spin quickly in opposite directions. I don't you know, those of you who have ever experienced a reel-to-reel -reel tape recorder will be able to visualize that better. Obviously a pretty retro-tech metaphor. Another visualization I've used, and one thing I would like to point out, I was a uh, teacher for 14 years, school teacher. Um, people do learn with different learning tracks. And so for some people are auditory learners and visual learners and, and, and so forth. And a big difference I've found in people... Um, is ability to visualize. Now, I have a very strong ability to visualize, so I tend to promote or come up with exercises related to visualization. If you're not a good visualizer, then you may need uh, to create your own. Um, and I think that's always the most powerful transformational ritual is one that you create yourself, uh, not necessarily inheriting from a tradition. Um, if you can find something better than the numbers exercise, for example, it, it's not very traditional, but it's just really basic. But the one I'm about to give is just more personal, and it's not meant to say you should do this specific one. Though so if it works for you, feel free to take it. It's more to give an example of how you can create something very specific for yourself that's very effective. So this is a visualization uh, I've used for myself. It comes from the first two Lord of the Rings movies where we see Gandalf facing down the Balrog on the bridge of Khazad Doom in the mines of Moria. And in this vision, I see Gandalf activating his staff and luminescent sword, uh, 
Glamdring, is the name of the sword, and saying with all his might, you cannot pass. I am a servant of the secret fire. You cannot pass. A simpler, so you just sort of summon your will when you say it, and you say it directly to the thought forms of just like, you cannot pass, and you're just going to stand there with your glowing sword and staff and tell him to back the fuck up. A simpler technique um, I recently came up with that seems quite effective is that when I notice my mind picking up a dumb tape loop, I just say to myself in the tone of an irate protective mother watching her two-year-old pick up a dog turd and about to put it in his mouth, drop it, drop it. Get creative and use whatever works for you. Again, those are just personal examples, but you get the idea. Use your creativity. The magic quarter second. Finally, if you really want to uh, go for the Olympic level of this practice, you will try to derail a scheme attack in what neuroscientists call the magic quarter second. If you are able to recognize that a trigger event is catalyzing your amygdala to launch a scheme attack in the first quarter second before it has gained a physiological hold on you, then you could knock it off its tracks, nip it in the bud before it can do any damage at all. And of course, that's a little bit too glibly expressed because it's, it's like uh, telling everybody but King Arthur will just pull the stone out of the rock. It's simple. It's, that's an extremely difficult thing to do. Uh, consider, for example, somebody uh, coming along and finding the person they had a monogamous bond with uh, in flagrante with some cheating on them with somebody else. Um, and, you know, there's going to be an explosion of um, response and all those things that we talked about of physiological uh, things, blood pressure, um, thought forms, uh, the amygdala is, is going to be going very hot and super active and so forth. There are all these powerful things that happen and it takes about one quarter of a second, not a very long period of time for them all to come into being. And then you're completely enveloped by them and, and you know, you're, you're not aware of anything. If you're in such a state, you're not aware of any other type of feeling. It completely envelops you and dominates you at that moment. Now imagine if you could somehow in that quarter of a second time lag before all of that stuff completely envelops you if you were able to stop that. Well, I don't think I could in such a situation. I don't know if anybody could, but that just gives you an idea of how difficult this is. But if you can, but it's also a tiny window of opportunity to seize a great deal of free will because you would be getting in there and really stopping the whole source code from which your entire emotional matrix is generated if you could take advantage of that in a quarter second okay and, and a, a way to uh, one way I found to actually be able to do that sometimes is let's say there's a situation where that you're entering into and where trigger events are entirely predictable uh, for example, you have to, you're obliged because of family ties or whatever it might be to have a, make a phone call 
with someone that you know to be a drama queen, a, a person who is going to like lay a trip on you or something like that. And this is not to judge anybody harshly, but we, we all have made such phone calls where we just know in advance that like, you know, all kinds of unnecessary drama is coming. So now you actually have a predictable trigger event and that's extremely valuable because now you can be waiting alertly on your side of the tennis net, so to speak, uh, where you know that a trigger event is going to be coming across the net. And because of that, unlike the person, you know, at least in a typical example, that's, you know, suddenly without warning, discovering their uh, lover in flagrante with somebody else, um, you, you know it's coming and are therefore more prepared and, and you've centered yourself more. You're more calm. And so you're like, okay, I know this is coming. I'm going to see if I can stop it from affecting me because if the more it affects me, the more I've allowed this person to push my buttons. Uh, just playing the <clears throat> recording of a little in the last couple of minutes, the recording of this back for myself, I discovered a lot of you knows and sort of or these filler kind of sounds we make. And that reminds me of another exercise that is incredibly powerful and useful in what it can do. Uh, it came from the same person, Ron Claremont. And he, though he may have gotten it from another source, I don't know, but uh, it's an exercise to get rid of those things that mar our speech you know, um, sort of really like these filler kind of words and sounds that do not convey information and make us sound uh, like less of a poised speaker and uh, more of a, a scattered person the more we use those things. And there are some people who, who do it to an extent that it just completely embarrasses them. And, you know, like, sort of, you know what I'm saying? It's like, you know, it's like, uh, and they just can go on like that for long periods of time and it's quite distracting. So here's what you do. And, and this works, this is a social exercise as compared to the numbers exercise. It's a solitary exercise. So this is another dimension. And, and here what you need are the sort of spiritual allies that I always recommend. And these are the people, the folks that share your commitment to consciousness. That's the kind of person who'd be willing to do this exercise. Now, somebody could have a commitment to consciousness and not want to do this exercise. That's completely legitimate. And you might find that you don't want to do it during a time of deep soulful emotions, for example. I think it would be very um, um, what's the word? Um, galling and kind of garish to be doing this exercise during such a time. But what you do working with a partner or partners we did this as a class. Uh, whenever you see, like I just said, ah, so if I catch myself in time and I notice it, then I just repeat the nonsensical word three times and then continue with what I, what I was saying, like, you know, and so then I would say, like, you know, like, you know, like, you know, and just keep going on with what I'm, I'm doing. On the other hand, if I don't notice that I've said one of those, but my partner or partners do, then they alert me to my transgression by just saying beep. So this is hard for me to do um, 
without another person uh, to do it sort of stereoscopically. But but if I'm I'm talking like this and you know and beep somebody in the class says and I'm like I have to play the tape back and realize what I did and, and then I'm then I just say you know you know you know and keep on talking. Sometimes that may interrupt your train of thought. What you tend to find out when you observe yourself with this and when you observe other people is that the more you are getting scattered psychologically, the more you will lapse into those uh, things, those words, those nonsense words. And so this is a very powerful exercise because, and again, these things can seem like the numbers exercise is very mundane, but think about what it's doing. It's creating a whole new layer of metacognition. Metacognition is where you observe your own thinking process. So these, this uh, verbal performance we do, and it's kind of an awkward process. We're basically making these little mouth noises to this pressure signal to communicate with each other, and it's a stream of words. Well, if you think of that as a movie, what is the core of that movie? It is thought forms that we have in our heads that then we translate into these spoken out loud words that we say to each other. So a person who's thinking clearly will tend to speak clearly. And a person who is speaking clearly, unless they're reading from a teleprompter, we can otherwise assume that they must be thinking clearly or they wouldn't be able to come up with these coherent spoken words unless it's memorized or somehow artificially fed to them or something. So this, this is a... Uh, this is a powerful uh, attempt to make our thinking and our speaking more intentional. It's an expansion of free will, and it is a movement away from being mechanical, which is the, the state that Gurdjieff, for example, was always trying to help people uh, move away from. And a lot and these techniques a lot are very Gurdjieffian. So now what you're doing is you're building this layer of metacognition that is very uh, close analog to it would be the uh, tape buffer. At least now it's probably done with computers, obviously. But in the past, uh, when you would call an AM talk show, they had, instead of having everything live, because the caller could start cursing or saying libelous things or whatever, or threatening the life of the president or God knows what, you have this tape loop, a five-second tape loop, so that what the live feed is actually five seconds old. And that means you can press a switch, uh, press a button, and if somebody, uh, and bleep somebody out, basically. So, in effect, that's what you're creating in your mind, is you're creating a time buffer, a, con a, a time buffer of conscious observation of what you're about to say before you say it, to scan it uh, as if for viruses, for these nonsensical words and sounds. Um, uh, you know, sort of really like, etc. And that is improving your self-awareness in a very powerful in a very powerful way. It's very direct and very powerful. Okay, let's move on. So that was a kind of, uh, I hope, valuable tangent off of what we were talking about before reading from the text, which was about a way to seize control of that magic quarter second. I want to just get back to that for a moment because I gave an example in the text that I think is, is uh, illustrative of this. I had a great opportunity to try the Olympic version of the magic quarter second thing when I was canvassing for a wildlife refuge. 
in certain, and this is door to door canvassing, in certain yuppie neighborhoods, I knew there was a high probability of getting a nasty response. As a former recovering New Yorker, um, who was also a school teacher for 14 years, six in the South Bronx, my whole being is conditioned for the high speed comeback. I might have needed that back then, but with canvassing, that can get you and your organization in trouble. So what I would do is ring the bell, take a couple of deep breaths, center myself in my body, and wait like a tennis player for the ball to come across the net and a golden opportunity to catch the magic quarter second. But even though I knew the trigger event was coming, I often couldn't help but to react anyway. And I would, you know, I could feel myself, um, somebody says something really insulting or something like that. Uh, um, I could feel my, you know, the heat in my body going way up, which it does, of course. It could go up to like 106 degrees or more uh, from a burst of adrenaline. And, you know, the heart rate is pounding and I'm thinking of some cutting thing to, to say back. And, and sometimes I did do that and sometimes I didn't, you know, depended on the circumstances. Um, but there's this extreme reaction. And even if you know it's coming, it can sometimes be hard to catch that quarter second before it gains hold and you're completely enveloped in it. It should go without saying that what you especially don't want is to allow a scheme attack to attack to control your actions, decisions, or spoken words. When that happens, if you think about yourself as the, the appropriate sovereign, not a, in a patriarchal way of anybody else, but of your sovereign domain, your psyche, and now uh, there's a combination, abdication, um, uh, coup d'etat, because you're being deposed and now these other things are allowed to, to rule the sovereign domain and to control your, uh, even your actions, let alone not only control you to start, but they start by controlling your thoughts. And they end by controlling your actions, such as spoken words. I mean, think of the, the amazing sacrifice of free will and of uh, being in charge of your own being that that represents. So there's a well-known samurai story where the samurai has a duty to assassinate the assassin who killed his master. Uh, methodically, he stalks the assassin and at the right moment approaches with drawn sword. The assassin spits on him. The samurai sheathes his sword and walks away. The idea is that the samurai became emotionally agitated when he was spit on, and now if he used his sword, it would no longer be a pure impersonal act. Words are often swords. When we are emotionally agitated, we should sheathe our tongues and hold back from actions and decisions. And that is just very basic from the I Ching. That is the philosophy of reticence. If in doubt, don't act. Okay, now we come to another major section of the guide, the last section. And this is a sort of philosophy that... Uh, comes partly from the I Ching. A lot of it comes from the I Ching, but also some of my own observations, and I've been trying to refine it a little bit recently. Uh, and this is called Dealing with Shock. And it starts off with an autobiographical thing that relates to where I was, I think, in 2003, the events I described before with the Canadian border and so forth. Um, and if you remember, I was writing this in the freak campground in Ione, Washington after that event. 
And so I wrote, since I'm undergoing a series of shocks in my own life right now, and shocks like earthquakes and their aftershocks tend to come in a series, this is no academic exercise, but a challenge to see how well my philosophy of shock can hold up to the real thing. And that was a pretty good shock. It was like being shut out of an entire world where, again, my most important endeavors, relationships, and so forth were, were going on at that moment. The necessity of shock in the I Ching. First, in order not to take shocks personally, we need to acknowledge that they are both inevitable and necessary. Shock is such a well-recognized principle in the I Ching that it is not only one of the 64 hexagrams, hexagram 51, shock, thunder, the arousing, it is also one of the eight trigrams out of which the 64 hexagrams are built. Shock is a crucial alchemical ingredient needed for evolution. Homeostasis and punctuated equilibrium. Why is shock so crucial? One reason is that all organisms are conservative. They dial in an equilibrium, what biologists call homeostasis, and they seek to maintain it. This is a crucial life function because organisms are generally complex, fragile processes that require relatively narrow parameters of environmental conditions, such as oxygen levels, temperatures, food sources, and so forth. Inevitably, the environments in which they occur have destabilizing chaotic elements that frequently threaten death or even extinction, uh, predators, uh, extreme weather changes, and so forth. Organisms work indefatigably uh, to try to dial in their niche, to maintain the homeostasis that keeps them going. You don't want your liver enzymes, heart rate, or blood sugar to fluctuate wildly. That would threaten your survival. You want them dialed in, rolling along an even keel. The human psyche is an organism, the most complex we know of, and complexity often means fragility. But both Freud and Jung recognized what anybody looking around himself should recognize is that the human psyche is also highly conservative. Contra naturam development. Conservatism can be good for homeostasis, but can also, if it is excessive, put a ceiling on development and evolution. To evolve means to change, and we don't always want to change. Two fairly con uh, conscious and compassionate people I met recently told me, and without mincing words, I don't like change. I actually just said it straight out loud, which amazed me. I told them that I could sympathize because change is usually precipitated by shocks, often unpleasant shock, often unpleasant shocks. But uh, to dislike change, I'm fixing the text as we go along. Sometimes it's a little causing me to break my rhythm. I apologize for that. But to dislike change is to create inevitable suffering because change is the only constant we have. It is said an Eastern monarch once charged his wise men to invent him a sentence to be ever in view and appropriate in all times and situations. They presented him with the words, and this too shall pass away. How much it expresses, how chastening in the hour of pride, how consoling in the depths of affliction. And Abraham Lincoln said that in an address to the Wisconsin State Agricultural Society in 1859. But when we inwardly resist the passing, the change, we are more likely to interpret it as an outward shock acting as fate. 
The conservative tendency is so strong that many will resist change even if they're in a bad situation and an opportunity for improving change presents itself. You may remember the Morgan Freeman character in Shawshank Redemption, who is unable to adjust to life as a free man after decades in prison and wants to get locked in at night. I'm also reminded of a newspaper photo I once saw of a young girl who had been horribly abused by her mother, who had had, uh, broken many of her bones. And the photo was of a court uh, hearing, and it shows the little girl being led away by some kindly-looking matron while she is screaming to be reconnected with her mother. So better the devil we know than a devil or even an angel that we don't. Uh, The next few paragraphs were written during a big timeout during this morning's reading of this. I realize certain paragraphs are missing, so here they are. The conservative homeostatic tendency, once again, is almost always beneficial for any organism. Organisms love homeostasis. For example, your cat or dog would love for his bowl to always remain in exactly the same spot and for feeding to always happen on a fixed and predictable schedule. Your body does better with a consistent diet and bedtime. However, if there is one organism we know of that has a deeply conflicted relationship to the conservative homeostatic tendency, it is the human psyche. It's not good enough for our psyches to stay the same. We need them to evolve. Bob Dylan, in a song lyric, summarized this essential situation. He who is not busy being born is busy dying. A person with a commitment to consciousness is, by definition, a person busy being born. Consciousness is never a static, permanent attainment. It is quite often a moment-to-moment struggle as you fend off tape loops, scheme attacks, etc. that would like to own your consciousness. On the positive side, the commitment to consciousness can bring you many moments of being born again into beginner's mind or self-remembering. It can bring the new dawn of a revelation that opens a whole new vista of awareness. Another type of person is busy being born by the struggle to live a righteous life and the courageous attempt to bring a high degree of compassionately engaged impeccability to bear on every moment. Though they may not employ the same consciousness practices I've suggested here, they probably have their own versions. When afflictive thoughts and feelings arise, instead of doing a numbers exercise, they may repeat the Lord's Prayer in their heads. They are busy being born through the continuous growth of both character and soulful uh, relations with others. Many other types of, of people are busy dying. Aside from the obviously self-destructive types, Consider how many people are psychologically stagnant. The main transformation is that all their quirks and neurotic symptoms and distorted thoughts only become more defined, more sharp and rigid as they age. Essentially, they are becoming more mechanical as conditioning seems to have complete rule of their thoughts and actions. For a great many people, being dominated by acquired conditioning is the default state and may encompass nearly their entire incarnation. Consider how many people are born, live, and die within the thorny confines of a fundamentalist religion. That's from my point of view, of course. From from their point of view, they may be having a very fulfilling life that is given needed structure and mythical dimension through fundamentalist religion. The degree of structure and mythical dimension that they inherit may be stronger than anything they could have created for themselves. That depends on their innate level of development. 
it is a very particular blessing from my point of view if a person is strong enough to generate their own structures and a life of moral and mythical dimensions without the help of fundamentalist religion. The average person tends to tread water, seeks to maintain status quo, homeostasis, and will change inwardly only in response to drastic outside shock. When shocks occur, the average person takes no responsibility for them, especially if they are negative shocks, choosing instead to believe that he is the victim of bad luck or forces beyond control. Of course, sometimes circumstances really are, as far as we can tell, independent of individual will. When there are earthquakes or volcanic eruptions, most of us assume that these are caused by geophysical forces and not because there were too many sinners in the land or that God was upset because we failed to massacre the Hittites as instructed. Another version occurs with New Age fundamentalists who believe in you create your own reality as an absolutism. And uh, for those folks, uh, uh, a volcano erupting in Pompeii um, must have been caused by, I guess, the shared neurotic complex of all the citizens of Pompeii, and therefore they all created a volcano to wake themselves up or something like that. Uh, that's an, uh, I covered this paradox between you create your own reality, which is a, val a valid reality-causing vector. It's just not the only one. And the one on the other side of that paradox, which is outside reality creates you. So please see the podcast or the text of, that, of Dynamic Paradoxicalism for, for more on that. Many shocks we create ourselves. Uh, for example, an illness that is uh, brought on by our own neglect or abuse of our bodies. Um, that would be an example of a self-created shock. And so if you're living in a free country and you have reasonably good health, it's quite likely that many of the, or most of the shocks you experience will be self-created. Especially with self-created shocks. You must get busy being born or else you will be busy dying. Our lives are extremely complex processes. When a process hits a bifurcation point, it goes toward a higher state of organization or a lower one. Initiation is a type of shock uh, created by human beings uh, with various degrees of conscious intention. Initiation is a vast topic, and I'm only going to touch on a couple of key points. I've had a couple of interesting conversations with uh, Stanislav Graf on initiation. Sorry, having a little technical difficulty here. And it felt like we, we saw it in very parallel ways. Although I haven't read it myself, I believe he's written about this in one of his books. I'm not sure which one, and that would probably be a great source for learning more about initiation. Initiations used to be structured into, in uh, traditional cultures um, <clears throat> as a way to awaken people from the immaturity of youth into adulthood. Tribal initiations often involve life-threatening shocks and trials, such as ordeal poisons. In modern, modern culture, we don't offer much in the way of sufficiently strong initiations. Joining the military and going through boot camp is certainly an intense initiation. Of course, it is an initiation aimed at producing soldiers, not highly individualized psyches. In our society, a person with a strong will toward individu individuation will, um, <clears throat> will attempt to spur uh, development with self-initiations. 
These could take many forms such as travel, wilderness experience, experimenting with hallucinogens, etc. Initiations usually need to have a perilous intensity. You need to feel that sanity as well as life and limb are at stake. In casting Precious into the Cracks of Doom, I described it this way. A few years ago, a very enthusiastic young woman told me about how she was involved in a new education program for kids, which would involve tribal initiations in the wilderness. Although not wishing to deflate her enthusiasm, I felt forced to tell her that actually she was talking about arts and crafts in the woods, that tribal initiations uh, were impossible for any legally constituted school in our society because you would have to be willing to have some initiates die or go insane. Self-initiations must have a perilous edge. If the self-initiate is fortunate, the danger proves lethal to ego structures but allows other healthy tissue to survive and reconfigure. But many self-initiations, just as those induced by the tribal collective, are shattering to the body and or sanity of the initiate. There is always the danger that the self-initiate has presumed upon his inner strength, and likewise the young naive and like the young naive hero, he ends up devoured. Because young people are not being provided initiations for the most part, they will often seek out their own, but many of the initiations they find or create are of low quality. For example, the initiation of uh, street gangs, um, <clears throat> of a street gang, which may ask you to murder someone to prove your street cred. Many sorts of adolescent risk-taking are unconsciously intended as self-initiations. Since most such initiations are unguided, um, <clears throat> there tend to be a lot of tragic outcomes. Shocks can be good or bad, in quotes. Uh, winning the lottery or suddenly falling in love um, <clears throat> are, are, are shocks uh, just as much as a car accident or economic crash. Sorry, I've run low on time, so I'm forced to fix things as I'm speaking. Sorry about that. Um, <clears throat> shock just means the equilibrium has experienced a perturbation or disturbance, a sudden disequilibrium. Don Juan said, I'm paraphrasing, that for the average man, everything is either a blessing or a curse. But for the warrior, everything is a challenge and a learning experience. The psychic inertia that resists change is so strong that Jung described the path of individuation or unique individual development as contra naturum, contrary to or against nature. Gurdjieff, who so eloquently described man's mechanical nature, called the change to unmechanicalness against God. Their point was that to generate your own internal change meant pushing against vast inner and outer inertial force, that it w <clears throat> um, so that it was as if you had the whole universe resisting you. Often it is us, our own neurotic homeostasis and passivity, our false ego that provides the resistance. And as Jung said, man's greatest passion isn't sex, love, money, or power, it's laziness. So shock can be like a divine gift, a catalyst for evolutionary change. After all, if it wasn't for shock in the form of a giant asteroid hitting the Earth 65 million years ago and flattening everything larger than a chicken, there might be a velociraptor strolling through tropical foliage uh, right now instead of you sitting here reading this over the Internet. Our incarnation began with birth shock and ends with a shock too. 
Shock is our often unwelcome and constant, if unpredictable, companion. Thought experiment in subcreation. Try this thought experiment. You are the author, the equivalent of God, of a novel about a young person who, in the course of our story, is going to develop greatly as a person, psychologically and spiritually. Would you, as God slash author, provide him with the perfect peaceful relationship, the perfect career, and a tranquil, happy, successful life? Not unless you wanted to create a boring story and a boring character. What you will probably find when you play the role of God slash author is that you're going to have to create evil, in quotes. You're probably going to have to hurl some gigantic shock at that young person right at the limits of what he can handle to get him out of the door and on his quest. If you're writing a screenplay, you better do this in the first 10 pages, which is the equivalent of the first 10 minutes of screen time. This is called the inciting incident, and if you don't have it, unless you're an absolute master with a cult following, you will probably lose much of your audience. There are classic archetypal elements to story structure because story structure parallels life structure. Tolkien called fantasy writing sub-creation because the author is acting as a subset of God in creating his own world. What would would, uh, the Lord of the Rings be if Tolkien hadn't sub-created evil in the form of um, Sorin, Saruman, Ringwraiths, Orcs, etc.? Hobbits, uh, you know, going out on dates with other hobbits or something like that. Boring. Nobody wants to watch Frodo eating second and third breakfast every day while getting fat and complacent in Hobbiton. No, we want to see him at the cracks of doom, tormented by evil temptation. We want development in our stories, not stagnation. We want shock, change, and lots of it. But when it comes to us, no way. We want predictability. We want a world where we get what we want when we want it. And what we want is to get dealt the royal flush with no jokers or wild cards. The message of Hexagram 51 is that shock can be developmental. What counts is our stance in relation to the shock. We need to accept shock, even welcome it as a learning challenge. Many shocks we experience involve relationships. Our voluntary relationships, such as romantic relationships, by an almost invincible psychological principle, reflect where we are inwardly. So instead of going into he said, she said mode and creating a schema-driven storyline bound up with the particulars of that episode of the soap opera, you can instead ask yourself this question, when have I been here before? When have I felt, in different circumstances, what I am feeling now? If you are honest with yourself, you'll probably recognize that this isn't the first time. So pull your gaze off the present, overly charged situation and look at these parallel points on your inner map, especially if there are points involving other relationships. Take a step back and see if you can't find a pattern. Is there a mistake here you've made before? Are certain schemas activated? Remember the principle that those who don't learn from history are doomed to repeat it, especially if it's a relationship history. Subtle and gross shocks. The way things often work is that we are first given a chance to learn from a subtler shock, but if we don't learn from it, don't answer its demand for change, we get more powerful shocks. Our bodies teach us through shock, and so do our psyches, as well as the force vectors of seemingly outside fate. For example, a man poisons himself with too much alcohol, and his body sends him a self-protective shock. He finds his head in the toilet in a violent spasm of vomiting, and he wakes up with a horrible hangover. That's actually a subtle shock, way too subtle for some people. 
The man works through that subtle shock and a few more like it while he develops his acquired taste for self-inflicted punishment, and he even comes to take pride in his tolerance for poison. I can really hold my liquor. I may be fat and impotent, but I can drink these young punks under the table. When subtle shock doesn't work, then you get big shock. Instead of nasty symptoms, your body presents you with a major disease like cirrhosis of the liver. Still, some will disown responsibility for the shock. I ought to sue those liquor companies. Feeling a victim is indicative of refusing to rise to the learning challenge of shock. If you are a victim of your personal history, then you are bound to remain one as history repeats itself because a victim is the opposite of a learner slash warrior. Catching things before they exit the gate of change. The conscious person prefers to learn from the subtle shocks rather than get hit over the head with a two by four. Instead of waiting till we have had a major disease, um, <clears throat> instead of waiting till we've had a major disease, we can pay attention to our bodies. Notice the subtle shocks that tell us that we're doing something harmful and make creative, um, make corrective adjustments. In I Ching terms, the idea is to catch things uh, before they exit the gate of change. If you notice subtle pre-signal shocks, you can sometimes avoid the need for full-scale shocks. For example, if your observation of body language tells you that your approach toward a certain person is creating resistance in him, you can back off and avoid the shock of argument and conflict. Attuning to subtle shocks. Some ways to become attuned to subtle shocks include paying attention to intuition, considering synchronicities as possible signs or portents, remembering and interpreting dreams, and consulting with the I Ching or other oracles. In his potentially life-saving book, The Gift of Fear, security consultant Gavin DeBecker provides numerous case histories that demonstrate that most victims of violent crime rationalistically overrode um, <clears throat> um, distinct intuitions, warning them of impending danger. Our intuition is much more acute and so much faster than our conscious thinking, especially in rapidly unfolding life-or-death situations. Many of Gavin DeBecker's clients, often celebrities, are being stalked or harassed by anonymous threats. Gavin discovered an intriguing and effortless way to find the identity of an anonymous harasser. I don't have the book in front of me, but it goes something like this. Gavin, who do you think it could be? Client, I have no idea. Gavin, okay, just as a game, I want you to pick the name of anybody you know. Anybody, right off the top of your head. Client, okay, Bob. Gavin, any reason to think it might be Bob? Client, oh, no way, it couldn't possibly be Bob. He's such a nice guy, so polite. He sent me a dozen red roses last week. Almost inevitably, the person they pick off the top of their head will turn out to be the harasser. Dreams, especially nightmares, can be subtle shocks seeking to awaken us to inner, and much more rarely, outer problems, giving us a chance to learn and make adjustments so that we don't have to get whacked over the head by fate or develop full-blown diseases, mental illnesses, etc. Oracles, especially the I Ching, the Book of Changes, can give us a heads-up about a problem that, if neglected, may become shock. Sometimes it can give us an early warning radar blip uh, that shock is coming. If the shock has already arrived, it can advise us on how to weather the storm. Choosing shock through self-initiation. 
Some people seek to generate their own shocks to stimulate self-development. Since we live in a culture that does not provide the developmental shocks that in traditional cultures are provided by initiation, we may seek to create our own initiations. Self-initiations, voluntary shocks, include things like fasting, heroic doses of hallucinogens, mountain climbing, and extreme forms of travel, sports, or adventure. These self-initiations can go amiss if they serve to build up false ego rather than collapse it. I might, for example, undertake these extreme practices so I can build up a prideful identity for myself as a master of asceticism, an hallucinogenic test pilot, a daring mountain climber, etc. If the means of initiation becomes an end in itself, then it is being abused and is depotentiated as a developmental shock. Traveling, for example, can be a great way to stir up change, to shock your complacent equilibrium. But as Emerson put it, the problem with traveling is you take yourself with you. Traveling can be a real secular pilgrimage, a transformational journey, but only if we are integrating it as inner change, not just as a changing glamorous backdrop for ego identity and dramas. Some people try to push the self-initiation option too far, which amounts to the spiritual self-violence of forcing progress. Some people have a Germanic death wish and fall for the glamour of excessively risky behavior. One of Nietzsche's moral superman notions was, what doesn't kill us makes us stronger. But that notion can be pushed too far, and Nietzsche ended his life completely insane. So taking a hundred tabs of acid, for example, may neither kill you nor make you stronger. You want to learn from subtle shocks if you can, and don't necessarily need to whack yourself in the head with a 2 by 4 Avoid presumptions about the shocks of others. Also, we should adopt a learner-warrior relation to shocks for ourselves, um, an inwardly independent stance, but not necessarily <clears throat> um, apply it across the board to the shocks and misfortunes of everyone else. In 12-step programs, they're fond of saying, God give, only gives you the burdens you need to bear. Fine, I accept that for myself, but I wouldn't want to tell that to a baby dying of AIDS. I don't want to smugly look at a continent of people dying of famine and presume they are getting the burdens or learning experiences they need, or that their karma is punishing them. It's not so clear, without having to resort to reincarnation and multiple lifetime karma, if the shock as learning challenge applies to those who, for example, don't seem to have enough neurological cognitive function to learn from what's happening to them. I accept this stance for myself because I know that I have, and probably anyone able to read this has, the inner resources to learn from the shocks I'm experiencing. If I don't choose victimhood for myself, that doesn't mean that I assume there are no victims anywhere. What about mistreated animals and abused children? Is God giving them the burdens they need to bear? I'd love to have a pat formula to explain these horrors away, but I feel like it would be a self-serving disrespect of the authentic suffering um, of the world. This is very time, uh, timely because just five days ago, Japan had this massive earthquake and ensuing tsunami and nuclear disaster, and people have been some people have asked me, what's the long view of this? Uh, well, shock gives some of the long view, but we could, if we try to explain away suffering with some formula, um, that's just not acceptable as far as I'm concerned. Are shocks good news or bad news? One lesson of shock is that we are not in control of the Tao, and there are lots of unknown, unknowable variables in play that make life the unpredictable experience 
we all know it to be. From our limited vantage, it's also hard for us to know if the unpredictable shocks are good news or bad news. You've probably heard the old Chinese story about the farmer whose neighbor asks him, What's new? One of my horses ran away. That's bad news, says the neighbor. I'm sorry to hear that. Well, actually, the mare that ran away came back with a stallion, so we ended up with another horse. Great news, responded the neighbor. Well, actually, when my son went to train the stallion, he broke his leg. Oh, that's terrible news. Well, actually, the army came through to conscript young men into the draft, but because my son had a broken leg, they didn't take him, and it keeps going like that. Every event is connected to a vast web of antecedent and consequent events, and therefore, um, <clears throat> and therefore we are unable to judge the overall effect. On the other hand, we should also resist the New Age fuzzy-headedness that insists that we be non-judgmental about everything. The warnings about being judgmental are about using bad judgment, especially to stereotype people based on religion, race, orientation, etc. We have to be judgmental. To say that it's bad to be judgmental is a judgment. Shocks demand that we make good judgments. So although we don't know where everything is going and don't presume that negative shocks may not be developmental, we also don't surrender our judgment by adopting glib sayings like it's all good or God only gives you and it's not all good. And there are things our true will may demand we make judgments about and work to change. And there's more about this um, where the non-judgmental idea comes from and what's wrong with it in dynamic paradoxicalism, the anti-ism. When in the belly of the beast, when in the belly of the beast, finally, it's one thing to have a philosophy of shock. It's quite another to be in the belly of the beast. When I look back at my own efforts to walk the talk during my last fortnight of shock, um, these events which precipitated the writing of the guide are narrated in the path of the numinous living and working um, <clears throat> with the creative muse. I see cases where these principles helped me handle things well and other times when I was on the ropes. The shocks triggered huge scheme attacks and it was a titanic struggle to regain my inner independence. When you're feeling overwhelmed, it can be good to third-person yourself for a minute. Consider your situation from an outside vantage and ask yourself, what would I advise this person given this set of circumstances? There is an advanced martial arts technique where if you're being attacked by multiple assailants, you create a remote point of view, like an eyeball on the ceiling, mapping the action out from above. Writing this guide has been an exercise in remote point of view for me. Sometimes, under the acute stress of shock, it's easier to be a warrior than in ordinary circumstances. Don Juan said it's much easier for warriors to fare well under circumstances of maximum stress than to be impeccable under normal circumstances. Use the shock as an opportunity. Rise to the occasion. The Chinese ideogram that means crisis also means opportunity. Although I may not have walked the talk perfectly, whoever does... I did use this occasion of shock as an opportunity to examine and write out my Weltanschwang, or philosophy of life. Shock can be an opportunity for you to do the same. If for no one else, this is a guide for me, this perplexed interdimensional traveler, as I try to find my way through the labyrinth of the Babylon matrix into greener worlds than these. Never surrender. 
At all costs, the interdimensional traveler must never surrender multiple incarnate identity and essence to the Babylon matrix or any other such matrix. Since so many um, listeners are most familiar with the hideous strength of the Babylon matrix, we will give it particular emphasis. From a thousand thousand angles, the dark magnetisms of the Babylon matrix would love to pull travelers into the wrong ends of telescopes. Essentially, the Babylon matrix is a tunneling effect that can easily shrink your incarnation until it is like a twisty wormhole burrowing into the festering tissues of a rotten apple. When you choose the BM wormhole over the rabbit hole of the self-aware interdimensional traveler, your incarnation shrivels and descends like the slow intestinal twisting of an endless, monotonous colonoscopy winding its way down the wrong end of a telescope. The Babylon Matrix seeks to remake you in its own image. It would like to play you out as a tragicomic retread, the six billionth remake of Honey, I Shrunk the Interdimensional Traveler. The Babylon Matrix churns out remakes by shrink-wrapping hominids into stock characters. It would love for you to be a frat boy, a homeboy, a drama queen, a geek, a couch potato, a yuppie, a workaholic, a celebrity, a celebrity stalker, and so forth. Surrender to its shrinking rays, and you might find yourself living out your incarnation as one of these diminutive caricatures, a skin job with a limited shelf life. In the 80s, in the early hours of a smoggy and overcast Monday morning on the Cross Bronx Expressway, I first saw what would become a ubiquitous bumper sticker. It read, I owe, I owe, so off to work I go. It was as if the veil had pulled back right there on the Cross Bronx Expressway, and something I wasn't supposed to see, one of the underlying black magical spells, actual source code of the Babylon Matrix, suddenly became visible in the manifest realm. What potency such spells of darkling magic have! A spellbound victim, the owner of the bumper sticker, laboring under the power of malign enchantment, discovers the spell, the actual contract the devil made him sign in blood, and yet cannot break from it. There it is, the devil's contract, turning slowly in the spinner rack of a convenience store, rendered word for word onto self-adhesive vinyl. The victim purchases this perfect copy of the spell that rules him and attaches it to the bumper of his car where he sees it every day, and yet he never awakens from its power. An interdimensional traveler must never surrender to such spells. These spells are swirling around us like sheets of self-adhesive shrink wrap spun by a tornado. We live within a tornado of memes, a dark and smoky twister spinning fragments of culture. Spinning within the twister are newspaper headlines, faces, fragments of video, sound bites of neurotic conversations, glossy magazine torsos, a swirling shrapnel of sticky cultural fragments. Lose your footing and the twister rips you out of Oz, out of agrarian Kansas, out of all the infinite places you could be, and shrinks you into an anxious meat puppet stuck in traffic, worried about being late for the fluorescent lit cubicle, unpaid bills and debts stinging like pale scorpions at your shrunken kernel-like mind, animated by coffee with non-dairy creamer, kept afloat by serotonin-specific reuptake inhibitors and propelled by self-induced fears. Is there an engine driving the twister that eludes us, adding invisibly to its torque and stickiness? 
the interdimensional traveler will at least keep that an open question. He knows that there are other worlds than these, and who can account for all the forces that interpenetrate the Babylon matrix? A little oblique reference there to the mind parasite uh, hypothesis. Uh, don't make that ring clear, I guess, but. <clears throat> Certainly, there is no ambiguity about the existence of the agents of the Twister, the enforcers and minor black magicians of the Babylon Matrix. They are all around us, uttering their obvious and yet potent and insidious spells from schoolyards, televisions, street corners, classrooms, boardrooms, and bedrooms, from the thousand thousand blind alleys of the Babylon Matrix. The interdimensional traveler must not step through the wrong ends of telescopes. The interdimensional traveler must not let anxious voices, inner or outer, hurry them down narrowing corridors. The interdimensional traveler must not step onto the conveyor belts of degrading and dreary timelines. Some foolish interdimensional travelers will perceive these injunctions through the exciting, intoxicating, and scintillating distortion fields of the archetype of the eternal youth. These archetype-possessed travelers will see the injunctions of what not to do as an infinite license to indulge, and though they emulate Peter Pan on steroids, they end up as flabby Peter Pans with kidney damage, divorcing the Babylon Matrix only to marry flaccid never-never lands where obese lost boys play video games in their mother's basements. The path of the interdimensional traveler is not a license to indulge. It is a space that opens when the imagination of the eternal youth and the impeccability of the warrior meld. It is a path that demands prodigious will and discipline. If you try to follow the path of the interdimensional traveler without will and discipline, you will end up as a pathetic lost boy of some sort, sucking weakly at the soured edges of the Babylon matrix, caught in a gray limbo where embittered contempt for the realm of shrink-wrapped, spell-driven drones melds with a parasitic dependence on the fruits of drone labor. Portals open for the traveler on a mission of compassion who is aligned with his or her true will. Different portals open for a dark traveler possessed of and by a dark will. Still another set of portals opens for the young um, fool traveler, foolish traveler, who may, for example, step through the wrong end of a kaleidoscope. Certain intentions beckon certain matrices, for better and for worse. An interdimensional traveler must be a warrior, must have a moral purpose, and must be aware of all the shrinking rays that press upon us. The price of freedom for the interdimensional traveler is eternal vigilance about the sticky enchantments that would like to bind us to the Babylon matrix and turn individualized travelers into hordes of automatons and hungry ghosts. To step across the event horizon, you need to molt the many layers of malign enchantment encasing your soul. Go then. There are other worlds than these.